Welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Patterson, and today we will be talking with Alana Bush about her new book, Inequalities of Aging, Paradoxes of Independence in American Home Care. Welcome to the show, Alana. Hi, thanks for having me. Can you start us off by telling us about yourself? Sure. I am an anthropologist, and um, I'm currently an associate professor at the University of Iowa. Um, I'm jointly trained both in anthropology and social work, as well as gerontology. Anything else you want to know? No, that's great. Can you tell us how your book came about? Uh, Sure. Um, When I started my graduate program, I was interested in low-wage work, and um, but had the good fortune of being a student researcher for Ruth Dunkel, who's a gerontologist at the University of Michigan, where I was studying. And um, she persistently and gently kept asking me, like, are you sure you don't want to study older adults? Are you sure? And um, at the time, I was really, um, you know, really thinking about low-age work, but wasn't really sure. In social work, the world is divided into both sort of practice modalities and populations of interest. And so, um, Although social workers are deeply interested in the structural causes of poverty, um, low-wage work doesn't fit into the normal categories of practice for social workers, but older adults do. Um, And so uh, I was thinking about her question and my interests, and at the same time, uh, as often is common for lots of um, the people I talk to about this book, uh, I had family members using home care workers. My um, grandfather, who I call my Zadie, had hired a home care worker to help take care of my grandmother, my Bubby. Um, and the relationship that they had was um, interesting and messy and confusing um, and seemed like it deserved, uh, that anthropology might uh, be a useful way to untangle uh, some of the things that were going on in that relationship. And at the same time, as I was learning more about what was going on, um, in sort of the world of low-wage work. Um, So this was the early 2000s, so it was not long after welfare reform. Um, It came to my attention that there was a new wave of organizing at the time going on around home care workers. Um, And so all of those things coming together made me think, hey, maybe this is a good project. And um, I've been working on it ever since. (laughs) Yeah, cool. So can you tell us um, a little bit about your methods and also in terms of kind of give us a broad overview of the care groups that you studied. Sure. So um, my methods are deeply ethnographic. I um, chose to work in Chicago uh, primarily because if you're interested in the intersections of race and class and work, uh, Chicago has been for, what, a century, the place to go. Um, And uh, when I was there, I worked primarily with two organizations, two home care agencies, Um, Those kind of organizations have all kinds of names. I've just called them agencies. Uh, One that's privately funded by by a state program in the state of Illinois called the Community Care Program that uses Medicaid waiver money, uh, and one that is privately funded by the individuals who use it. Um, And so I decided to do that in part because um, I wanted to do long-term uh, immersive research in older adults' homes when their older adults were with them. And so even though there's a huge gray market in elder care uh, in which people work independently for older adults, I was concerned about doing that and not having any sort of organizational oversight, excuse me, or protection um, or anybody sort of 
keeping track of me just because I was going to be in older adults' homes and um, it could raise a lot of suspicions. Mm -hmm. So I decided uh, to work with the agencies also because I was interested in that public-private comparison. And although in some states, um, home care, uh, Medicaid-funded home care can be organized independently by older adults. Usually it's called, that's called consumer-directed care. In Illinois, that's that's not the case. All, all of their public care goes through the community care program and, and the agencies that program contracts. So in order to have a healthy comparison, I needed, I needed to stick with the agencies. So, um, I spent about, I spent a couple months working in each agency's offices, um, doing participant observation primarily, as well as some interviews, um, with, uh, agency managers and supervisors, uh, observing trainings, going to meetings, sort of <clears throat> classic institutional ethnography. Um, and that was really useful. We spent a, I spent a lot of time listening to people, like one, one side of phone conversations as supervisors um, handle them and manage the various kinds of issues that come up or manage staffing and things like that. Um, and that was really useful because it gave me a sense of sort of the broad business of each agency, both how they try to make money and... Um, you know, how they handle the multitude of issues and conflicts and challenges that arise in everyday home care situations. Um, so I probably learned about hundreds and hundreds of cases that way. Mm -hmm. um, and then at each agency, I asked the supervisors to help me um, select a small number of older adult and home care worker pairs with whom I spent um, usually about a day a week, sometimes a day every other week for uh, the following 10, 11 months. Um, and so I was, so they helped me pick those pairs and that's a long process. I'm happy to talk about more, but it's kind of, it was sort of managing both the issues of selection and consent was sort of complicated. Mm -hmm. um, but when those pairs, um, well, I guess the main thing I should say methodologically about that is that um, the agencies handled those things a little bit differently, but in general, um, the pairs that I ended up with are probably, the older adults are probably a little lonelier than their sort of overall caseload because they were interested in having me hang around so often and so much. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and um, there's a pretty good chance that supervisors were sending me to cases. In some cases, I know that supervisors wanted me to see interesting cases which turned out to be more challenging cases. Um, but in other situations, they wanted me, they were worried, um, the publicly funded agency supervisors were worried about my safety, um, things like that. So it's not, you know, it's a sample derived from those kinds of limitations. Mm -hmm. um, and I also didn't work with anybody who had um, a diagnosis of any significant dementias um, because I was worried about the... Um, the implications of long-term consent and me being in people's homes and them not necessarily understanding why I was there from day to day. Mm. Lots of um, interesting methodological issues to tackle. Yeah. I mean, thinking about how to, how to work in, in the intimacy of someone's home where there's not oversight or, um, you know, you're not in a, a care institution. Um, and, you know, not only, I mean, the, the formal, problems of consent are relatively straightforward to manage. And even in this setting, you know, if a guardian agreed, I could still be there. But um, at least for me, that wasn't a really a good enough form of consent. I needed the people I was working with to understand what I was doing there and to feel relatively assured that they would re recognize that from, from day to day. Mm 
without having to go through the consent process every day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, ethnography in and of itself, because it's intensive and involves getting, you know, being so immersed in relationships, um, you know, raises a whole set of these kinds of questions that, um, you know, you always have to navigate. So, um, at each agency ended up working with a handful of older adults and home care workers, primarily when the worker was, when they were both together in the older adult's home. Um, and then, um, and I did that for, um, yeah, it depended on the frequency I was able to go, but, um, every week or every other week for eight to 12 months, depending on the, on the, um, individual, uh, situations. Um, and I'm happy, yeah, I'm happy to talk more about what I did while I was there. Um, at the end of that period, I interviewed both, well, I interviewed the older adults, a kind of extended, uh, open-ended, uh, life history interview focused on what I call life uh, care life history interviews. So focused on their experiences of care across the life course. Um, and then I, I was able to do those with most, but not all of the home care workers as well. So it's in your title, but uh, the main emphasis of your book is really about social inequality. So on page six of the introduction, you say the vulnerabilities of older adults and care, care workers are often co-mingled. And I thought that that was a really powerful way to describe it. So you, can you sort of give us more of, of what this means for you. Yeah, sure. I mean, so in the United States, we usually think about, and people usually ask me to talk about aging or uh, low-wage labor and, and inequality separately. Um, and we often think about populations as distinct, as though inequality among older adults is one kind of social fact and inequality among workers is a, is a separate one. But of course, both of these kinds of inequalities are based in the social and economic and especially racial structures um, that shape life in the United States. And so looking at the ways in which that plays out um, as these two working, as you know, low-wage home care workers and older adults are trying to make uh, viable lives together through the, the home care work is especially um, telling, right? So we see that older adults are vulnerable in multiple ways, um, including because of their various economic positions as they reach the end of life, but also because their bodies are changing and their capacities for living in the ways that um, uh, are typically valued in the United States are changing and, and usually talked about as diminishing. Um, and they come to rely on home care workers who... Um, make, I think the last number I saw was like $11 and 63 cents an hour on average. Mm -hmm. Um, so there, you know, and, uh, a significant, uh, number, I can't remember the full statistic. Um, the majority of whom rely on some kind of public benefits to, um, support their families, um, including the, <laughs> including the healthcare, you know, Medicaid, uh, funded healthcare that they're, that some older adults are receiving. Um, and so the ways in which we structure elder care in order to enable older adults to live in valued ways um, then shapes the possibilities for workers to live in valued ways or not, um, both reflects and is generating the kinds of inequalities that we see and talk about so often as um, growing in the United States. So I think that it's an interesting place to be thinking about inequality when we usually don't. Yeah. 
And another term that comes up in the intro is generative labor. So I was hoping you could explain what you meant by that and how you saw it playing out in your survey data or in your interview data. And in the ethnography. So the, the reason that I started using the, the phrase or the term generative labor is that, um, you know, for a lot of the time that I was analyzing my um, ethnographic materials, I was thinking about the ways in which sort of socialist feminists have theorized reproductive labor and, um, and find that, that history of thought really productive for thinking about what's going on in home care. But one of the challenges of, of the work in reproductive labor, in thinking about labor as reproductive, um, I mean, there have been many, it's a big field, there have been many critiques of it, but as well as a lot of thinking around it, um, is that it sort of draws our attention to the beginning of life and to biological reproduction. And in, in anthropology, a lot of the work on reproductive labor has pointed out the ways in which uh, some women and families are empowered to reproduce both biologically and socially. So reproduce both people and ways of life um, while other people are disempowered to do the same. Um, and that often um, one, of the, one of the more useful for me kinds of ideas within the reproductive labor literature is the idea of stratified reproduction that indeed the capacities for some kinds of women and families to reproduce are supported by those whose reproduction is discouraged or so that we see, for example, underpaid childcare workers who have a hard time supporting their families, making it possible for wealthier women to go to work and support their families in uh, ever more um, generous ways. Um, and so, so that there's a kind of stratification or hierarchy of uh, reproduction there. Um, and I find that literature really useful and it's useful for thinking about home care, except that it's so focused on the beginnings of life that the specific challenges of later life in which, um, you know, biological reproduction isn't necessarily at stake, but other kinds of ways of living are, are harder to talk about and they kind of get sidelined. So that was one piece of it. And the other piece of me wanting a different kind of way of thinking, a related but sort of different kind of way of thinking about these forms of labor um, is that the language of the theory of reproductive labor is that um, that these kinds of these kind this kind of work the allocation of reproductive labor to certain kinds of people by race and gender and class um, reproduces those very structures and I think that 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 you know the evidence is pretty strong that 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 is the case except that I think that that sort of leads us into a trap of thinking that that reproduction is inevitable rather than thinking about how the actual ways in which we organize and perform that kind of work are actually generating the inequalities. They're not just reproducing something that's already there, but they're actually generating them anew uh, in changing circumstances. Um, home care is a relatively, I mean, it's, it's both new and old. Uh, it's rapidly growing. Um, and so the things that are being produced through home care reflect what's already happened on the ground, but they're also creating it. Um, and so I think the language of thinking about it as, as generative is useful. Um, it also helps us think about the role of generation and gender, all those, you know, words rooted in the same Latinate uh, root. <laughs> so, so I find it useful for just thinking about where the opportunities are in these, these forms of labor, not only for reproducing historical forms of um, hierarchical structures, but for potentially shifting them. So then in chapter one, you introduce us to some of the older adults. Um, and I found Mrs. Cole to be really interesting. And 
here in your book, she mentions that it's really important for her um, to be independent. And she shows this through her reciprocity with her worker. And she just wants to feel like she's contributing. So I was hoping you could talk about this idea of independence. So yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I, (laughs) Mrs. Cole is really interesting. She was a challenging and um, yeah, an interesting person. Um, is that I think that when we start talking about things like independence and when you see words like independence used in policy, they often refer to a certain kind of um, an assumption of separation or um, a lack of need for uh, the input of others. So, and, and especially in policy, the word independence often keys a sort of um, argument about the ways in which individuals should not rely on government or the, you know, the public um, coffers, government programs and funds. Um, And home care has been promoted widely uh, as encouraging and supporting independence. So it's interesting that on the one hand, the policy use of that phrase is often, um, you know, deeply embedded in sort of neoliberal ideas about people being separated from, um, you know, the broader sort of national public. Um, but when when older adults use the phrase, they mean something a little bit different. I mean, they they sort of mean that, but mostly they talk about two things, and um, they talk about you know wanting to be in control of the the daily rhythms of their life, and they talk about wanting to be uh, able to to be in, in sort of equitably reciprocal relationships, which isn't really what we usually assume is meant by independence you know, being embedded in these deeply reciprocal relationships. And so Mrs. Cole, who used the word independence more than I think any other person I met in Chicago, um, is really helpful. She's she's ferociously independent, right? She um, does all kinds of things to protect her property, to not rely on others. And yet what what not relying on others means isn't that she has no need for them, but that when she needs other people in her life, she wants to to be able to participate in relationships with them in which they also need her. And, and so the idea of independence is actually a, a form of reciprocity or an evaluation of reciprocity is really different from what we're usually talking about when we use that word. And so I thought she was really helpful for helping to sort of show that. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting. Like you said about the discourse around the word independence and um, sort of how we talk about that. Yeah, that, I mean, it's a word that holds a lot of value, you know, a lot of moral weight in American discourse. But um, I think, you know, as an anthropologist, I'm interested in sort of getting into, you know, what are the different kinds of things that people mean by using a phrase by that? And, you know, especially a word that structures so much of our policy and so much of our ideology, but also matters for people in their evaluations of their own sort of role and value in daily life. You know, where where are the frictions and how does that word sort of make uh, make very different things seem the same um, so that people want home care so they'll be independent, but they don't actually mean like not relying on anyone for anything. They mean something a little bit different than that. So then you move on to the home care workers' lives. And here again, social inequality comes up. And another phrase that I really liked from your book um, was that intimacy and exploitation have long been intricately connected. So I was hoping you could tell us more about the workers' lives. I guess there's a lot of different things to say about this, which is why I'm trying to figure out where to start. Um, 
I think one of the things that's a kind of challenge in talking about low-wage work in the United States is that old, uh, is that national discourse often sort of presumes that people end up in low-wage jobs because um, they don't have ambition or they're lazy or, I mean, we have a, a sort of long history of um, troubling discourses about poverty and, and low-wage work. Um, and so... I thought it was helpful to think about the structure of home care, both in the contemporary moment, but also historically arising out of, there are longstanding patterns in the United States in which um, women of color and immigrant women in particular are funneled into domestic work jobs. um, And that the, the ways in which those jobs are structured as well as the exclusion from other kinds of labor um, then produces, um, or and that that then channels women continually into or women in these those positions continually into these kind of jobs, and so both at a sort of broad national historical level and at an individual level, that that chapter sort of seeks to tie those things together, and to think about uh, what some of the consequences of those patterns are, and so. Um, and so as we learn about home care workers, I think, um, although I chose, I chose to, to share the stories of the home, two of the home care workers who um, were maybe the most detailed about their personal histories, um, I think it's pretty clear that neither of these folks are without ambition. They're both incredibly hard workers. They're, in fact, the cornerstones of, of their families and that um, they're, you know, their work is sort of both crucial and, and and inadequate to meeting the needs of both themselves and their families. And so it's pretty hard to encounter um, really any of the home care workers I worked with, but especially these, these two workers and, and continue to think of home care workers as somehow, um, you know, lacking ambition or um, lazy. <laughs> um, I don't think I've ever met two people who work harder than, than those two people. Um, so, um, and, and also to think about the ways in which their commitments to care are being shaped by those histories that they have, you know, it's not only that they, they are economically reliant on these jobs and unashamed of that. Um, and at the same time, have a commitment to the kind of work that, um, you know, when we start looking at middle-class and professional jobs, we would value the kinds of, um, the kinds of commitment to, um, you know, pr- you know, doing their jobs in a way that they think is moral, in a way that they think contributes more, you know, more than just economically to society, um, and they have they're pretty they're pretty clear on their sort of moral, uh, you know, their ethical commitments to care, and um, there's a whole other conversation that sometimes comes up about home care workers. And, the, and, and home care workers actually use this language themselves. It's all over the literature on care workers um, that it's really important that they don't just care for the money. You know, they have this moral commitment to care. And I kind of wanted to play around with that of thinking about, you know, why might people say that when they clearly need the money? <laughs> um, and that these both of these workers, and in fact, lots of the workers I knew, um, don't see those two things as opposed. That that in fact their commitments to care ought to be valued economically as well as socially. 
Um, and, and you can kind of hear the indignation in, from both of them that that's not the case. Um, and so they would argue that both their, their skill in caring, and, and these were both excellent care workers by, I think, most evaluations, um, both their skill and their commitment uh, in other fields would, would merit them um, sustainable, you know, family wages, living wages, um, and the fact that it doesn't. Uh, outrages both of them and and clearly me as well. <laughs> yeah, so then you move into talking about management and supervision. And I found this to be sort of like an interesting, I don't know, the word kind of like dance comes to mind. Um, so I was hoping you could talk more about um, these issues that you saw in, in your ethnography. You know, this was the hardest chapter for me to write, because partly because there's a lot more material that, I, you know, you just have to pick. Um, but indeed, because... Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's often an inclination when when writing books about um, you know worker relationships and so worker management relationships to think of managers or in this case supervisors as kind of bad guys. It's easy to kind of um, turn them into straw men. And in this case, the supervisors. I mean, the supervisors are in a really challenging position, mediating between the various conflicts. And the various sort of different demands that um, are placed on them, both by sort of older adults and their family members' expectations and um, some of the um, rules and laws in place that regulate this kind of labor. So I focus mostly on the sort of disjuncture or the ways in which uh, sort of democratic ideologies that, you know, especially when we're talking about public care. that resources should be handed out in some kind of objective way using some kind of objective formula and the messy reality on the ground that it's pretty hard to turn the need for care into a score (laughs) that becomes, you know, a number of hours that someone needs care for. Um, Or that, um, you know, democratic ideas about anti-discrimination that, you know, when an organization is hiring workers, it should do so without um, without bias to the worker's gender or race. Um, and the fact that older adults on the ground are not held accountable to the same. In a- the agency setting, older adults who are living in private homes can allow whomever they want into their home or not. So our ideologies about mm-hmm. sort of the protection and control over private property and our ideologies about um, equal employment come into conflict and supervisors are sort of left to navigate how to, how to um, uphold both those values when they don't really go together. And so, you know, rather than seeing them and and they're imperfect, like everybody else in the book, um, but thinking about the different ways in which they're trying to navigate competing claims and, and the claims that home care is really structurally meant to be in the middle of, right. It's, especially when we're talking about publicly funded care, it's a, a publicly funded uh, service happening in the most, what we would consider private of spaces. And so the different ways we construct those categories of public and private then become the supervisors to figure out. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so there's lots of stories about that. And so the other theme in that chapter is really about the ways in which um, agencies are also working in a different way, across a different sort of challenge with the public, you know, constructions of public and private to um, 
both harness and and sort of extract the knowledge about care that home care workers gain in their homes and then redirect it into this other form of formal or paid em, or public, depending on how you want to talk about it, um, employment. And the numbers of different sort of oddities and challenges and conflicts that come up from that and how, how they're trying to manage that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so mostly I'm just, I don't, I, you know, yeah. they're, their work is really, really tricky. Yeah. Um, and yeah. they, they often handle it with a, a lot of um, consideration. And um, and I guess it's worth noting that although in this situation they're more powerful and they're better paid, these would be sort of marginally middle class jobs. They're, this isn't like nobody's, <laughs> these aren't, these aren't in a broader sense, particularly powerful or well compensated roles. Yeah, so so another um, theme that comes up in your book is what you call embodying inequality. And so I was hoping you could talk about what you mean by embodied practice and habitus. So in some ways, this is sort of the heart of the book and and building on uh, both Moses and and Bourdieu's ideas of habitus. Here I'm arguing that um, the everyday work of care um, sort of instills in people and home care workers in particular in their sort of everyday dispositions, the idea that their bodily comforts and needs are uh, less urgent, less significant, potentially less important than those of the people for whom they care. And that it is um, notable (laughs) that that then means that they're embodying the hierarchies um, the structural hierarchies that led them into home care in the first place, the sort of social understanding that some kinds of people are more important than others. And uh, at the same time that, um, you know, that, you know, this is a idea that is potentially useful for thinking about how it comes to be that lots of people who do care or care for others uh, in an everyday sense, whether paid or unpaid, uh, come to see themselves as as less important than the people that they care for. That 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 actually gets inscribed, phys- sort of physically in, in an embodied way. So, for example, if you're an older, if you're a home care worker working with an older adult who, um, you know, keeps the apartment ten degrees warmer than you're really comfortable working in, you know, you do some things to accommodate that. You bring extra water. You dress in layers, uh, and you also accept that you are going to be uncomfortable. Um, and in the most extreme case, I talk about a home care worker named Doris, who um, at an earlier moment was a care worker in a um, nursing home and sort of put up with the exhaustion and the demands of the work for so long that um, she eventually developed a pretty significant case of lupus that took her out of the workforce for a very long time. Um, and so we see people, you know, so there's a sort of uh, everyday level of this where people accommodate discomfort, they rearrange how they use their bodies uh, in order to support um, the bodily needs of somebody else. Um, and in a longer term sense, the ways in which that, uh, that embodied hierarchy uh, threatens their health and their well-being um, and is in and of itself a cause of that sort of epidemic rates of turnover in in the home care industry. It's certainly not the only cause, but it's a significant cause. 
Yeah. So then um, you brought this up a little bit earlier, but um, this idea that private property really sort of reflects independence. And, and this is in your chapter on housekeeping as person keeping. And I thought this was a really interesting uh, set of examples. Um, for instance, the woman who had like all white furniture sticks out in my mind. Um, so I was hoping you could tell us about this kind of um, housekeeping as person keeping. That's Mrs. Cole, too. So in anthropology, there's a a long literature on um, the ways in which houses and persons and and families and kinship are sort of mutually produced, that the places and structures in which we live, um, you know, reflect the organization, uh, broader social organizations, but also the organizations of of people in those households. And that, um, you know, the ways in which we make make dwellings um, has everything to do with the ways in which we make persons as um, sort of co-constructed entities. And so there's not, you know, I'm not actually, <laughs> I'm drawing on a lot of anthropology from around the world that, that suggests that that is very often the case. And so when we start thinking about the threats that older adults face to their personhood, it's not surprising that we see those sort of um, articulated or um, engaged with as threats to the home. So that the idea of staying home um, becomes a way of thinking about staying a person, remaining a socially recognized person. And so, um, you know, the, the chapter on embodied care really focuses on the bodily ways in which older, in which home care workers enable older adults to feel in their bodies like the persons they've always been, to eat the foods that they enjoy, to live in a, a space that feels comfortable. Um to have the kinds of social relationships that they're used to. And so the next chapter, it, it sort of reflects the same set of arguments, but thinking about how home care workers in caring for both persons in and sort of both, they care for persons in and of their homes, um, do a similar kind of thing in their, what we would sort of usually call housekeeping. So that whether that's, um, Enabling someone who um, prefers to live amid a, a large number of objects and disorder. <laughs> so one of the people I talk about is um, described to me by others as a hoarder. Um, you know, and and her home care worker spends a lot of time figuring out, you know, how can how can we arrange this home so that it's both safe and familiar. Um, so instead of treating the sort of <laughs> attachment to the objects of the home and the, the um, even for the worker, really distressing um, dirt in the home um, as, I mean, she's both disgusted by them and sees it as the older adult's right to live like that um, and defends that um, in a pretty interesting way uh, to those who supervise her. So, so we start to see the ways in which, you know, protecting the home, keeping the home familiar, at the same time, making enough changes so that that space, you know, is it's both familiar and safer, um, is a really kind of subtle, a subtle form of work that the home care workers are pretty regularly engaged in. Um, and that is, is much more than just cleaning. I mean, not that cleaning is actually a just, right? That is also a complex task that requires a fair amount of um, thoughtfulness. Um, and the home care workers have taken that and they add to that the sort of adjusting and adapting the home to the changing needs of older older adults and and um, changing body their changing bodies. 
um, and trying to do that in a way that so that older adults still feel in control of their home and their space and still feel at home in their home. And it's a really interesting and subtle kind of um, uh, adjustment and attunement that they're always doing, both, again, for older adults' bodies and their homes at the same time. And so um, in in other work, we might think mostly about this these aspects of, of home care as emotional labor. And it was important to me to show the ways in which of course, there's a lot of of really classic emotional labor going on, but also a lot of sort of making making their emotional attunements to older adults manifest in the physical world, in bodies, and homes, and things like that. I found that really fascinating. Thanks. <laughs> so then, um, in chapter six, you talk about care falling apart. So here, you're discussing like turnover among the care worker population, um, and also the idea of sort of that. Um, disrupts the lives of both the workers and the older adults. So I was hoping you could talk about this issue. Yeah, so um, probably not surprisingly, given the the wage statistics, uh, home care has a really endemic, and at this point, I would call it almost an emergency level, um, both turnover and worker shortage problem. The last number I saw was that home care turnover is around 60%. um, And that 60% typically... I didn't see the um, the data behind that, but typically that sixty percent means turnover, an agency level turnover. It doesn't necessarily describe the frequency with which older adults and home care worker pairs separate, which is likely to be even higher. So, especially if you're working in an agency, you might find that um, a home care worker and an older adult pairing doesn't work out, and the worker is reassigned to a different case. Um, so within the same agency. So we wouldn't call that like at an employment level, that's not turnover, but in terms of its effects on people's lives, it is. Um, for older adults, that means they have to find a new worker that fits with, you know, makes, is a good fit for them and their household. They have to get used to them. And then that worker has to learn all of those things about their various subtle bodily needs, their familial histories, their household organization. Right? And so those transitions can be pretty disruptive um, and and challenging for older adults. It's not that uncommon that we'd see some kinds of, um, you know, more objective measures of uh, of that disruption in, in health outcomes. Um, and for workers, often if, you know, if they lose their jobs, it's obviously disruptive economically um, to their families. Even if they don't, if they're just um, reassigned to a different case, it may be a, quite a while before another case that's a good fit for their schedule and personality comes up. And so it, depending on the situation, that can also mean a loss of income for workers who typically aren't paid if they don't have a client. So, you know, 60% is sort of an underestimate of the disruption broadly. Um, and in the chapter, I talk about the ways in which, um, you know, we have we have some pretty good at this point pretty good ideas of you know sort of this the the objective drivers of turnover so people home care workers leave uh, home care because they can earn similar wages doing much less demanding work uh, work with better schedules or more hours um, they leave um, due to injury. Um, but typically, sort of wages and working conditions are the are the biggest drivers. Nobody's surprised by that. Um, 
Uh, and it's worth saying that it's not just turnover. We actually have a work a worker shortage. And as the labor market um, becomes tighter and tighter, those shortages typically get worse. Um, and so some states have, for their publicly funded programs about which we have the the best data, have um, ex- you know growing um, and and very long wait lists for people to access these much needed services. Um, but in this case, in, in the book, I talk about some other kinds of turnover that, you know, maybe are concealed by um, more straightforward survey data. So in this case, um, I'm talking about, so mostly we're talking about things like conflicts with supervisors. Um, and I, I try to provide this sort of broader backstory for a couple cases of turnover that I found pretty disturbing. Um, and in, in both cases, what happens if you kind of pan outwards or take a longer term view of the of the two workers who lose their jobs, in both cases, they're fired. Um, it becomes pretty clear that it the the sort of ongoing inability of, of home care workers to sustain their families uh, within the structures of this work lead them to um into losing their job. So in one case, um, a worker, you know, the short answer would be that a worker is absent too often and loses her job because um, she misses work too often. In the other case, the worker is fired because uh, for stealing money. Um, But in both cases, the the broader story suggests that it's something more complicated than that. And I I think it's useful to think about as we engage with the statistics around turnover to think about um, how those statistics might be embedded in these much more complex stories. So in both cases, the workers look like bad actors. They get fired um, for seemingly justifiable reasons. But when we think about how the work itself produced their behaviors, or at least was, is one of the causes of those behaviors, um, it becomes a lot harder to tell a simple story about bad actors getting fired. Um, and so I was interested in complicating the story a little bit. Yeah, this comes up in your conclusion, too, in terms of how we sort of measure these things in surveys or statistics. Um, And you say Americans' reliance on care work, both paid and unpaid, is hidden both in interpersonal interpersonal interactions and at the level of public policy. And as somebody who's a demographer trying to track caregiving, I would just like to say, heck yeah. (laughs) Um, So I was hoping you could sort of give us what you really see as the big takeaways from your book. Oh, geez. Um, I think the the biggest takeaway is um, that, at least for me, one of the biggest takeaways from a policy angle is that it's important to think about how we actually um, conceptualize and measure interdependent relationships. So one of the examples I use in the book, um, you know, in in our policymaking and in our our policy thinking, that, that we're so accustomed to using survey data that uh, focus on individuals and individual outcomes. And, um, and in a number of ways, that makes it hard for us to see how various kinds of outcomes might be tied up with one another. And to think about policies that might uh, engage with that interdependence itself, rather than solving the problems of home care workers or solving the problems of older adults as distinct, thinking about, well, in what ways are they being built together? And what kinds of policies might actually help us um, both, un- or what kinds of research might help us understand that? And what kinds of policies might help us address the interdependent nature of the problem itself? So the example that I use most often to think about that is that it's really interesting to me that we typically measure Medicaid, right, which is a major player in the home care market, um, 
we measure sort of the costs of Medicaid and we measure, um, you know, how many people are served or how much money is saved from home care by delaying nursing home entry or things like that. But, but Medicaid in this case is also an employer. So lowering costs has an effect within the Medicaid system. Um, you know, keeping the wages of Medicaid-funded home care low uh, is <laughs> makes these jobs unsustainable. So it increases turnover <laughs> and it increases the number of home care workers who are also reliant on Medicaid. <laughs> so that, um, you know, it's, that's a, a really helpful, because it all happens within the same program, <laughs> um, a helpful way of thinking about, you know, it, what would happen if we started measuring um, you know, measuring the outcomes of of Medicaid funded home care, both in terms of you know, at the same time as a, a jobs program and a care program, or in terms of its care outputs and its its labor outputs, um, and so that's one kind of sort of concrete takeaway. Um, I think for me, the other takeaway is. I guess also about rethinking the aims of care in general um, and, and incorporating some of the other kinds of meanings of independence uh, into the way we think about what care is for. And so I, I talk at the end mostly about trying to, you know, ways in which we might generate an equitable interdependence um, and the ways we might think about that as a policy goal um, in order to <clears throat> in order to begin sorry to begin to build systems that um, that sort of recognize and support the ways we all need each other um, and that so that's sort of a vaguer bigger picture sort of the, the, the idea of independence really um, you know, treating individuals as separate separate units or separable units, whether we're doing that in our, our research or whether we're doing that as a, a sort of policy thing, that when we're talking about the labor of, of making and sustaining and generating life, um, that's not really that's not really how humans work. Um, and so policies that imagine that it does and practices that insist on that um, are going to produce a bunch of outcomes, much of which we're hiding. You know, we hide in the language of independence all of those those mutualities, all of the ways in which we really need each other, and that's true. You know, aging makes that very visible, um, but that's that's you know inherently true across the life course at every age, um, and so and so sort of rethinking how we do that in a general way. Um, you know, recenters care and the the work of everyday life, um, but it it also helps us, I think, rethink, um, you know, how we decide what's important for locating our shared resources. Um, so for me, that's the the biggest and most general takeaway is that um, you know the language of independence does a lot of violence to the ways in which we actually need one another all the time across the life course to make our lives viable and valuable. And by valuing something other than that, we mostly produce a lot of, of violence and a lot of suffering. Um, 
And so at a, a basic level, that that rethinking is really critical. Great. Thank you. So today we've been talking with Alana Bush about her book, Inequalities of Aging, Paradoxes of Independence in American Home Care. So what are you working on now? <laughs> I'm getting started on a couple new projects, um, That one of which sort of builds on my uh, home care work to think about um, generative labor and everyday care in the lives of rural Iowans. So moving from urban, the urban Midwest to the rural Midwest. And um, I'm from Michigan originally, much like, much like Michigan, actually. <laughs> um, Iowa has faced uh, now a couple, a couple decades of outmigration um, that have really changed the, the shape of family life and daily life in, in rural communities. And so that project looks at how people have are working to rearrange and, and care for one another across the life course um, in those communities. And um, the other project um, sort of builds on my longstanding interest in um, family life and kinship and, um, and in thinking about aging as a, um, a creative part of the life cycle, or thinking about old age as a creative part of the life cycle in which new social forms are being generated. And so that project looks at um, the new forms and, and meanings of romantic relationships in later life as people are living longer. You know, how do new romances factor into family life? How are people remaking their ideas of family around um, late life romance? So that project will take a little longer to get off the ground, but um, is exciting for me. Yeah, that sounds really cool. So thank you for <laughs> being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. <laughs>